Good morning, my beloved friends. This morning we begin a kind of biblical mini-series. Over the next three weeks, we will hear parables that Jesus uses to teach about the kingdom of heaven. Parables must have been one of his favorite ways to teach because he used them often. So let's start at the very beginning. What exactly is a parable? By etymology, a parable is literally translated as, quote, a throwing beside. A composite of the Greek word para, meaning alongside, and the word bole, a throwing or a casting or a beam or a ray. Interesting, perhaps, but not all that helpful. A parable is often a short narrative that on the surface appears to be simple because the objects and subjects that are used are so commonplace, as in today, seeds and soil and a sower of the seeds. But we would do well to remember there is rarely anything simple about parables and how Jesus used them as a way to convey deep and universal truths, sometimes easily discerned, but often with layer upon layer upon layer of meaning. Over the years, I have found Jesus's parables are often more enigmatic than illustrative, more like complicated mazes with different twists and turns and paths to choose rather than a single straightforward road. Sometimes, some have even likened Jesus's parables to cones, stories or statements used in Zen Buddhism practice to provoke what is called the great doubt, used to test a student's progress in Zen practice. And in addition to hearing a number of parables in the coming weeks, we will then also hear many suggestions for what they might mean in our lives including how the gospel writers, in this case, the gospel writer of Matthew, offered the parables Jesus taught and then, most likely, added probably his own interpretation. The author of the gospel of Matthew had an agenda. He had a faith story that he was trying to compel his audience to hear and understand. Through decades of biblical research, scholars seem confident that these explanations were inserted decades later by the gospel writers themselves in an attempt to faithfully support and respond to the issues and realities of their particular communities of faith. In this case, the gospel writer of Matthew recorded his version and interpretation of this parable some 20 or 30 years after the resurrection in an attempt to faithfully support and maybe even challenge his community of faith. We all come with our own agendas, don't we? Even the gospel writers. So I've been thinking about all of that this week as we start down this path, wrapping it all around our continued dual pandemics, trusting that God has some wisdom and love for us as we listen and open our hearts to these ancient texts once again. I will start by saying I love the parables in our texts more and more. And it's not because they necessarily make anything more plain or clear as the years go by but rather because I feel less need to explain one correct meaning, as if that ever could truly be done. Instead, I feel more compelled to hear the parables like good music or poetry or how we might approach a piece of beautiful artwork 
appreciating that there is something to feed our souls in any particular moment based on who we are and what we bring to the text. The truth is, I believe we are all given good soil by God's grace from the beginning and are put on a path leading us forward with beautiful moments of messy and magical opportunities to learn about ourselves, often through each other and in the context of an expanding and deepening community of faith. So what does this community necessarily more spread out than ever before have ears to hear about this parable today. In short, I want to suggest that goodness, compassion, tenderness, kindness, hope, and reconciliation are all around us, bidden or unbidden, and our call today is to notice and then embrace these eternal truths, even when they are hard to see, maybe even especially when they seem far away. So how might we do that? There is something particular I want to offer today as one interpretation of this parable. But first, maybe just a little bit more about where I think we find ourselves today and what we bring of ourselves to the text. Toledo has had its heart broken many times in these past few months. We have lost friends and neighbors and co-workers to COVID-19 as Ohio now surpasses 60,000 cases. We have watched friends and family members lose jobs and homes and have struggled to financial security. We have had to suspend our Sunday community breakfast, just starting to find its stride, welcoming over 60 guests every week. And next to new, our resale shop, as a kind of community gathering place, has also had to close its doors for the first time in nearly 50 years. We have engaged in protests and rallies, bringing attention to the sin and perpetuation of systemic racism still rampant in our community. Last week, we learned of bribery and extortion charges and an FBI investigation into four city council members, and now the ongoing disruption all that continues to bring. This past Tuesday, we collectively mourned the tragic death of 26-year-old Toledo police officer Anthony Dia, killed while responding to what should have been a routine call. And then at 11.30 that night, on the very same day, there was yet another tragic loss of life on Monroe Street outside of Gino's Pizza in the senseless shooting of 22-year-old UT student Janiel Douglas by 24-year-old Michael Mitchell, who is now sitting in Lucas County Jail. This marks the 26th homicide in Toledo this year. In addition to all of that disruption and heartbreak, I also find myself thinking this week about people in our community and the different kinds of struggles they are facing. Perhaps not all as life-threatening, but disruptive nonetheless. I am hearing from our Trinity parents and children and how their worlds have been turned upside down. School and summer plans abruptly ended or changed and now uncertain. Daycare evaporated and diminished options for returning to work. 
I am also keenly aware we have many teachers and professors and library science and media professionals, IT support staff, and faculty all unsure of what the start of a new school year may or may not bring this fall. So with all of that rolling around inside of me and weighing me down, I have found myself wondering about this soil that Jesus speaks about in this parable. What can we do with all of that, all of that that is happening in and around us to cultivate our hearts and our minds to be good soil, soil that is rich and generative and life-giving and sustaining and resilient? And then I remembered something we discovered together a couple of years ago by social scientist and researcher Brene Brown when we studied her wonderful book, Daring Greatly. And what I remembered seems to fit just right for today. Years ago, when her children were much younger than they are now, Brown wrote a parenting manifesto for her and her husband as they engaged in the holy and sometimes crazy-making task of being parents. She wanted a concrete reminder of how and why we need to put down the measuring stick of our own lives in a culture that uses acquisitions and accomplishments to assess worth. She used the parent manifesto as a touchstone, a prayer, and a meditation when she was wrestling with vulnerability or when she became overwhelmed with what she calls the never-enough fear. It reminded her that who we are and how we engage with the world are much stronger predictors of how our children will do than what we know necessarily about parenting. And when I reread that this week, I thought I could use a big dose of that right now, because I think the same could be said of ourselves even more succinctly. Who we are and how we engage with the world are much stronger predictors of how we will do than what we know or what we don't know. I hear her words as an invitation of hope in times of despair or hopelessness, a way of cultivating the soul, soul and soil of our everyday lives. So then, in light of the parable we just heard, and all that is swirling around us in our homes and out in our community, I wondered if the same truths could be revealed for us as a community of faith by making just some slight modifications to her manifesto while maintaining the same intent. I encourage you to go online after church and look up the original words of her parenting manifesto. They are beautiful. Whether you are a parent or not, perhaps your inner child needs to be reminded of these intentions. But for today, for today, I have taken some liberties, changing just a few words in order to offer what I believe is a beautiful manifesto describing the intentions of ministry in this community and how we are being pulled into God's beautiful embrace each day, even in midst of great sorrow and confusion. I offer these words as a way of communicating what my own words cannot, my gratitude and my abiding appreciation and affection for what God is finding and doing in and through us in our dirty, messy, beautiful 
fertile soil kinds of lives, challenging us to be more together than we could ever be alone. These words both describe much of what has been planted in this good soil here in our hearts and in Toledo, as well as point us towards an unrealized but hope-filled future. So with apologies in advance to Brene Brown for anything that does not sustain her beautiful original intent, here is my version of a wholehearted manifesto for the beloved and imperfect people of Trinity Episcopal Church. Above all else, we want to know that we are loved and lovable. We will learn this from our words and actions. The lessons on love are in how we treat each other and how we treat ourselves. We want to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. We will learn that we are worthy of love, belonging, and joy every time we see each other, practice self-compassion, and embrace our own imperfections. We will practice courage in our community by showing up, letting ourselves be seen, and honoring vulnerability. We will share our stories and our struggles and our strength. There will always be room in our community for all of it. We will teach each other compassion by practicing compassion with ourselves first and then with each other. We will set and respect boundaries. We will honor hard work, hope, and perseverance. Rest and play will be community values as well as community practices. We will learn accountability and respect by watching each other make mistakes. And then we will make amends and by watching how we ask for what we need and talk about how we feel. We want to know joy, so together we will practice gratitude. We want to feel joy, so together we will learn how to be vulnerable. When uncertainty and scarcity visit, we will be able to draw from the spirit that is a part of our everyday life. Together we will cry and face fear and grief. We will want to take away each other's pain, but instead we will sit with each other and learn how to feel it. We will laugh and sing and dance and create. We will always have permission to be ourselves with each other. No matter what, each of us will always belong here. As we continue our wholehearted journey, the greatest gift that we can give each other is to live and love with our whole hearts and to dare greatly. We will not teach or love or show each other anything perfectly, but we will let us see each other and will always hold sacred the gift of being seen, truly, deeply being seen. My beloved, blessed, and broken friends, may these words be sown into the good soil of our very lives. May they also be used to reach those who have not yet discovered this beautiful community of faith or this way of living and loving in the world. May we place our trust in the journey 
and in the one who nurtures all that is planted in our hearts, so that in the end, what is cultivated and harvested is not perfection, but small moments of wholehearted living, strung together, day by day, affirming that we see each other and know without a doubt that by the grace of God, we are truly loved and lovable. May it be so.